All right. Go ahead and find your seats. Hey, um, two seconds ago, I just kicked over a full cup of coffee. And I just want to point out Jenny Decourt on her team is cleaning it up. Thank you, Jenny. You're the best. Um, you guys, welcome to the 10 a.m. I am so happy to see you. All right, this is fun. You guys are extra chatty today, which I love. Hey, my name's Andrew, if we haven't met, thrilled you made it. Um, we are a church that's all about seeking the presence of God. In fact, about a year ago, our elders were praying and we felt like God is saying to the church of today that the church of the future will be marked by the churches who are seeking the presence of God as a matter of first importance. And so this is our DNA, this is who we are. And we want to invite you to belong at Riverbend by seeking God's presence with us, of course, here on Sunday mornings, which is why we sing. I'm so grateful um, for Danny who leads worship, but also um, we pray. So we're about six weeks through our prayer course, which has been fantastic. Can you put your hands together if you've been at the prayer course? Yes. It has been really, really good. There's still two weeks left in the course, and we'd love to invite you to come to it. It's not too late. Talk to Jenny after the gathering at the Connect table. Uh, you can also join us here on Tuesday mornings from 8 to 9 where we seek God's presence together for an hour. And it's one of my favorite times every single week where we open up the Word. We oftentimes are like praying through a psalm or something like that, but we practice uh, seeking God's presence together. And we really genuinely believe that if we're going to see an awakening to the gospel in Central Oregon, it's going to start with a handful of people, just like you and I, ordinary people, but who know how to cry out and to groan for God to move with power. So that's what we're about. So make sure you say hi to Jenny on the way out at the Connect table. You can also talk to Brittany about connecting and community. We're also really about that. We're also really about learning the scriptures together. So this is what we do every week is we open up the Bible and we teach through it. Today is a super fun one. You'll see what I mean in a second. We've been going through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. We just look very intently and hopefully really honestly at a couple of verses at a time when we look at what is God's heart, what is his value, and, and how do we live this. And if you've been around throughout the series, you know that what Jesus is saying is it's not just the ones who hear his words, but it's the ones who put them into practice. And so we want to be the kinds of people who don't just hear God speaking, but actually do what he says. So let's stand together um, because we're going to read the scripture. And as you stand, I just want to remind you the reason why we do this, it's actually something that we've inherited from the high church, the more liturgical church. But we, we stand for the reading of scripture because we revere the word of God. And in fact, just visualize for a moment, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he was seated on the mount and everyone else was standing hearing him. So we're going to, about to read the words of Jesus. And um, why don't you just let me read it over you because there's a few technical words in here. And rather than you trying to repeat after me, let's, let me just read it over you and then we'll pray. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So now you guys know why I was pushing so hard to have Kids Church open this Sunday. Because I knew this Sunday was coming and we're going to be talking about sex. And I knew that we just had to get kids into their classrooms upstairs. This, you guys, uh, is the word of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. I love how Jesus doesn't avoid the tough subjects and the tough conversations. He goes towards them because we actually need to learn from him what it means to truly thrive in the kingdom of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Thank you for not shying away from the stuff we need to hear. God, we thank you that you are a God of compassion and great love and great forgiveness. And then also thank you for this profound challenge that's on the screen right in front of us today. 
And we want to not just be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of the word. So God, would you speak to us today? Would you do that supernatural thing that you do where Holy Spirit, you come and you prophesy over us and you shape us. We want to be radically transformed by the word. This is our heart. This is our passion. We wouldn't be here in the heat if it weren't for that. So here we are, God. We pray that you would use this time to shape our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, go ahead and find your seat. So you guys, a a couple of quick caveats before we dive in. Number one, in case you hadn't already noticed, this message is all about sex. And I am a suburban white male of mainly German descent. Which means that I'm the walking definition of sexual repression. Like, I am not comfortable up here. I can't even listen to R&B music without feeling uncomfortable. Like, I can kind of listen to it, but not really. It's, not, it's like, I know who Bruno Mars is, but don't make me listen to his music. I'm awkward up here today. If I look awkward, it's because I am. This is kind of a nightmare. Like, this is kind of a nightmare for me. Honestly, I, I'd rather be swimming with sharks than giving this teaching right now. And so the reason I'm telling you this is so that you will be my ally in this gathering. Because if I look uncomfortable, it's because I am uncomfortable. And if I'm like telling a joke to break the the tension and the awkwardness, all you have to do is laugh. It's not that hard. Just help a brother out. My gosh. I'm up here literally living my nightmare so that you can know and practice Jesus' sexual ethic. The least you can do is pretend to like a bad joke. Yes, thank you. So do we have a deal? Okay, I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. Okay, second caveat. As you know, uh, sex in the Bible is a big topic. And that's not to mention, like, the hundreds of questions that are being raised in our culture right now. And just, like, right off the top, we won't even be attempting to answer most of those questions today because we just really don't have the time. Our focus is going to be on the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. And so I'm going to be referencing a bunch of other scriptures that Jesus is sort of basing his argument on. But don't be surprised if you still have some questions unanswered at the end of this gathering. And one day I hope that we cover all of those questions because the Bible really talks about most of them. Um, In fact, if we ever teach through Genesis or Romans or 1 Corinthians, we'll get into a lot more of those questions. Also, if you have questions and they really are something that you want answered, please feel free to come and talk to me after the gathering. You can email me as well because I've got tons of biblical resources that I can point your way if you have more questions. Okay, so with those caveats aside, let's get into it. Why does Jesus and the Bible have so much to say about how you express your sexuality? Like, in particular, first and foremost, who you have sex with. But even more than that, like we just read, we can see that Jesus even has stuff to say about your sexual fantasies and the way that you work out your sexual desire. And this is a pervasive theme in the whole Bible. In fact, the majority, I look, the majority of New Testament letters um, have a command, instruction against sexual immorality. Here's just one example. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Five things that we are to put to death, and out of those five, four of them are commands about corrupted sexuality. Putting to death corrupted sexuality. And and another example is when the church had to decide what the new Christians were responsible, what God wanted from the new Christians in Acts chapter 15. If you know the story of the Bible, you know that after Jesus ascended into heaven, the people of Jesus began to scatter across the Roman world. And there was all kinds of people from a pagan background who had no concept of the Old Testament scriptures, the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, or any of that. And so the the leaders of the church at at the time had to get together and decide... What is going to be required of these new Christians and what does God want from them? And this is what they concluded. They concluded, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you avoid these things. Farewell. So uh, essentially, this is what he's getting at. The early early church leaders are saying it's it's two things. Don't participate, don't engage in idol worship, and don't sleep around. 
Those are really the two main things for the early Christians or the new Christians in the pagan world. So again, why does Jesus have so much to say? Why does he have so much to say about how you express your sexuality? Well, I think um, the most simple basic answer to that um, is because sex is an integral part of who you are as a person that God has designed for a specific purpose. Sex is an integral part of your humanity that God has designed for a specific purpose. If you're taking notes, write that down because that's bedrock to this conversation. Now, um, a number of you know uh, a mentor of mine, John Mark, who is a pastor out of Portland, started a church called Bridgetown. He has a couple minute video on this subject that I think does a great job in a couple of minutes describing or defining what sex is. So we're going to listen to that and then I'll come back to you in a couple minutes. So I find that there's a ton of talk right now in the world with my friends, with my family, my neighborhood about sex and about what sex is. And I also find, at least as a follower of Jesus, that there's a chasmic gap between culture at large's definition of sexuality and God's definition. And by that I mean from the scriptures um, as Jesus would define it, as the biblical authors would define it. So basically, as I read it, culture at large defines sex as recreational play between two consenting adults. So it's just physical, it's just the biological coupling of two bodies for sexual release and what's the big deal? As long as it's between two consenting adults, if it's mutually pleasurable, I mean, what in the world is the big deal? It's just play for grown-ups. And then the church often comes along and says, okay, here's all the rules. Here's where you can do it and here's where you can't do it. But they buy into culture's definition of what sex is. And then basically say, well, you can do it, but only in marriage. And oh, by the way, only marriage between a man and a woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And to most of us, that's just nonsensical. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you hear that and you think, what, what kind of crazy, uneducated, traditional, outdated thing is that? It makes no sense. But reality, we have to get behind it to the definition of what sex is. So as I read the scriptures, as I read the teachings of Jesus, here's how I understand sex. In Genesis chapter two, the word ekhad is used, that in sexuality, two people become ekhad, or it can be translated one flesh. This is a graphic, weighty word that basically means, when it's put together with this word flesh, fused together at the deepest level. That in sex, a man and a woman come together and are fused together at the deepest level. It is the bonding of two people into one entity, body and soul, physical and spiritual, because there's no way to bifurcate the two. So it's actually a much higher view of sex than cultures. Culture basically says, hey, it's just play. It's just biological. What's the big deal? God says, whoa, 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 no. It's way more than that. It's two people who become one entity and then over and over again enjoy and express love for one another through sexuality. Now, inside of marriage, this is beautiful beautiful because it, it takes two people and it doesn't let them drift apart. It keeps them together. It keeps them ekhad or one. But outside of marriage, this can be dehumanizing because it can turn people into objects for basically self-gratification. And then every time you walk away from a sexual partner, it's as if you tear ekhad, as if part of you is lost. And you do that enough times and it starts to hollow you out from the inside. So I, as a follower of Jesus, think that we need a higher view view of sex than culture at large is not a lower view. We need to get back to the mysterious, beautiful, powerful reality of what happens when a man and a woman make love. All right, I think that's super helpful in explaining in just a couple minutes. So what, let's key in on a couple things that he just said. Even the way that Christians talk about sex needs work. We've sort of become the morality police, which makes our position inherently like just more restrictive and in the eyes of the world, just less fun. And I suppose if that were the truth, then we would have to live with that. But the reality is that the Bible, just like John Mark said, is presenting a higher view, a much higher view of sexuality than Western culture. And again, um, the scripture that he referenced from Genesis chapter two, when he's talking about Echad is right here. Um, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. 
Okay, so uh, when Jesus is, uh, was talking about living free from sexual immorality and when he sort of uh, re-envisions the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, he's not saying that sex is the problem. He's not. In fact, God is the one who created sex and everything that God creates is, of course, good. So, um, and then on top of that, there is no shame. There's no shame in God honoring sexual relationships. The man and his wife were not ashamed. So like I admitted to you a couple of minutes ago, this is one of the areas that I still need work on um, in, in my life is because sexual repression and shame around the topic of sex in general is not the point of the Bible. In fact, it's probably a part of the problem of why we have such a difficult time talking about sex in the church, especially in our society who has no problem and no shame around the topic whatsoever. So. Um, by the way, if you're like sitting next to a stranger today, like I just recognize the weirdness and potential awkwardness. Some of you are even sitting next to your parents. That could be even worse. But you guys, I've got it worst of all. Like my parents are right there. Second row. Good, good. You guys are remembering our deal and I appreciate that. Keep it up. I need your help today, okay? So what is the problem? The problem is actually the corruption in our, sexual, uh, in our sexuality, in our sexual desire. It's not sex itself. It's the ways sex has been corrupted and broken because of our rebellion. I'm just like trying not to make eye contact with my parents. <laughs> Normally I love you guys up front, but you know, it's one of those days. So, so what, what happens immediately after Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden? What happens immediately after that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's beautiful. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? And so he said, I, hear, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So the first thing that happens to Adam and Eve after they eat the fruit is they are ashamed or they feel shame about their bodies and they hide from God. The literal opposite of what we were created for. God created us for intimate, personal, deep relationship with him. And now the first humans are hiding from him because of their brokenness and because of their corruption. And a few chapters later, we're introduced to a guy named Lamech, who is the first polygamist in the Bible that we know of. And he forces multiple women to be his wife, and he brags about it to his friends. It's a kind of a messed up story. And then um, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, Noah gets drunk on some wine that he's drinking, and then there's something weird, shady that happens with his son Ham in his tent, and it's just all messed up. Long story short, by chapter 20, like just the beginning of the story of Abraham, which is a couple chapters into the story of God, there is polygamy, incest, orgies, rape, and other sexual violence. So the recreational play for adults, as it were, is already getting very, very, very dark. And I know that in a group this size, um, especially if the statistics, the statistics are true, and I'm sure that there are, there's many of you who are victims of sexual abuse. And my heart just breaks that that is your story, and I'm so deeply sorry. And from the bottom of my heart, and I think the heart of God, I just cry with you, and I'm sad with you. It's not at all what God had in mind for you. It's not his will. It's not his plan. That's not what he has. You are a beloved daughter or son of God. You are made in his image. He cares deeply for you. And God expects that all of us honor and respect you, treat you with real honor as a fellow person in the family of God. Man, we have to normalize this conversation if we're going to see any real healing from the sexual abuse that's rampant in our culture. And so on one hand, I'm kind of like uncomfortable up here talking about sex. On the other hand, I'm so grateful that this conversation is finally happening because some of you need to hear that God wants to redeem what someone else took from you. And it's horrible. Yeah, amen. So this is why I think it's so 
important that we return to the scripture. So from what we observe in the world around us and also in the story of Genesis, we see that it's the corruption and humanity's sexual desire that's destructive. It's destructive, to put it mildly. I just gave you a couple of examples. We live in a society where one in five teenage girls are victims of date rape at some point in their life. It's horrifying, that number. And then at the same time, sex work is being reframed as female empowerment and as a high form of feminism. Now, I'm the exact wrong person to talk about feminism. I'm not trying to speak to that at all. But there's something that is not right about those two things. Those two things just do not go together. And this is why I think it's so, again, refreshing and I hope healing to turn back to the Bible and to hear Jesus' voice affirming God's command, thou shall not commit adultery. This is not an angry God who's trying to restrict your fun. This is a loving God who is reminding you of who you were designed to be. He's reminding you of how you can truly flourish. He's saying, trust me, single person who wants to be married or single person who just wants to have a good time or married person who's like bored or frustrated with your partner or whatever, trust me, I know how you were made. I know you, I see who you are. I know how you're put together. I was the one who made you. Trust me, it's better for you. This is how you truly flourish. Do not sleep around. It's not good for you. It's not, it's not my best for you. So corrupted sexuality is destructive, but God's vision for your sex life, much like anything else in the life in God's kingdom, is filled with joy. And there's way more to say about that, but which I'll probably get to here in a minute. But first, if you're tempted to believe our culture, kind of like what John Mark was saying, if you're tempted to believe our culture that monogamy from the scripture is a sort of antiquated, outdated idea, you're being tricked, you're being fooled, you're being misled. That's actually not the case at all. Monogamy was less popular in the age of the Ten Commandments than it is today. And when you think about the first century Roman Empire, like monogamy was not a moral value or ideal that they held at all. So Jesus is the one who actually popularizes monogamy in a world that rejected it. So monogamy is actually progressive, whereas polyamory is regressive. And that's an important thing that we have to sort out and get right, especially in our culture that is viewing the scripture as so outdated. Actually, monogamy is progress, not regression. That's a mic drop moment, actually, now that I think about it. That was a good, that was a good point I just made. I'm just saying. So, so to recap, sex is designed for you to experience in marriage. But there's also a deeper connection in the scripture that I want to make. In the Bible, God doesn't do intimacy without covenant faithfulness. God doesn't do intimacy without covenant faithfulness. So this is the why behind the command. It goes deeper, obviously, than just sex. It's about sex, but it's about more than sex. God doesn't do intimacy without covenant faithfulness. This is what I mean by that. We are faithful to our spouse because God is faithful to us. And since the garden, whenever God partners with humans, which he does a lot, he makes a covenant with them first. Before God partners with humans, he makes a covenant with them first. Here's an example. There's one of many that I can give you. In the book of Exodus, we see God coming with just this incredible power to rescue and to save his people. And the Bible says that he's jealous for them. And he, when he speaks to them, he uses almost like this romantic, possessive type, one-hearted uh, language for it. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He's very passionate about his people. But before he does any of that in the book of Exodus, he makes a covenant with their father, Abraham. And this is what Genesis chapter 15 says. Then uh, he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Greg, not too long ago, you texted me that, that verse and it's a powerful word. And then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So there you have it. There's one example of God making a covenant with people, with his people. You could also look at Genesis 12 and 
Genesis 17 and 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you're a Bible nerd and taking notes, go ahead and write those down and study them later. So um, God doesn't do intimacy without covenant. So by reserving sexual intimacy to the covenant of marriage, we are agreeing with God about faithfulness and about loyalty to our spouses, and we are reflecting his image in the world, which is a big part of our mission. That's a big part of our vocation. That's a big part of our job, by the way, is reflecting God in the world. And so as we practice covenant faithfulness and we make a commitment, we make a vow, we make a decision to till life do us part with this spouse, we get to enjoy sex in that relationship, and it's for the purpose of reflecting what God is like in the world. And anytime I get a chance to officiate a wedding, which I did yesterday, James and Amy got married yesterday out at Elk Lake, and it was fantastic, super fun. I never officiated a wedding out there before. It's beautiful. It's a perfect day for it. Um, And we always make sure that we understand this. When you make a vow, God, when he makes his vow to you, he always keeps his word. He never goes back on a promise. He always does what he says he's going to do. And so when we make a vow, when we make a covenant, it's the same Thing. He wants us to remain faithful to that vow. So, is that making sense? Are you guys with me so far? Okay, so all of that just barely scratches the surface of Jesus' sexual ethic and this teaching from Matthew chapter 5. Unfortunately, as time is going on here, I'm realizing that we are running out of time quickly. But, um, but I want to look at a couple more things before we sing a few songs to close and, and practice communion. He says this, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You can always count on Jesus, can't you? Just getting straight to the heart of the issue. Um, Here's how I'm reading this. Jesus is saying, yes, you shall not commit adultery. Of course, that's there. But what about all of your private sins? What about all of the lust in your heart that no one else knows about but you? Let's talk about that. Just think, you almost went to the lake today, but you would have missed out on all of the fun. Yes. Nice. Good job. I should make a deal with you every Sunday about this. So, um, so let's not mince words here. What Jesus is saying is uh, he's confronting us on how we objectify other people as sexual objects. We objectify other people's sexual partners, looking at another person with lustful intent. So lust is the morally corrupt seed of adultery. Lust is the morally corrupt seed of adultery. And I could never have predicted 14 years ago when God called me to be a pastor how many young men and single guys and married guys and old men even who are completely gripped by a a sexual addiction of some kind, usually to pornography. I had no idea how pervasive this issue was in our culture and even within Christian subculture. And in a room this size, I'm sure there's many of us who are wrestling with that addiction right now. In fact, when I hear about needing, uh, like hear from a wife about needing spiritual direction in their marriage, Automatically, I know it's either one of three things. They don't even have to tell me what it is. I know it's one of three things. It's either a money issue, a communication issue, or a porn issue. That's like literally all anyone ever reaches out to me about when it comes to their marriage stuff. So uh, what we do is we sit down together, husband and wife, and we start the process of healing. And there is healing, and there is reconciliation, and there is hope on the other side of sexual addiction for sure. And in fact, that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here. But the reality is that there's so much of this is rampant in our culture. So as a pastor especially, and as, as the, 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 the team on our, our staff team and our elders and our group of leaders, we stress this especially we cannot take our personal purity and integrity and character more seriously we cannot take it too seriously other women besides my wife are either sisters in Christ or they're other humans made in the image of God never sexual objects so you all are sisters and brothers you are other humans made in the image of God you are never sexual Objects, And that takes a deliberate, conscious, daily commitment. That's not something I can agree to 10 years ago and say, oh, yeah, I think I agree to that. And, and, and assume that everything's going to be fine. I need to make deliberate, conscious effort on a daily basis to make sure that I keep my desires in check, which we're going to talk about here, 
as we close. So um, we have to really quickly understand the historical background here. We haven't done a ton of like deep Bible work. I just want to hit you with a little bit, just a quick shot of historical background, and then we'll get back to it. So um, you've been with us the past couple weeks. You may remember Jesus is claiming to fulfill the law and the prophets, and he's offering his interpretation of the law in light of the religious elites who are opposing him. So he's got a lot of religious elites opposing him. You remember this from, the, from our previous weeks. Um, and he's offering his interpretation of the law instead of that. So, so the religious elites, their argument was that they were the ones with a high view of the Torah. And that they were the ones who were following it to a T. But Jesus sort of claps back at them, like in a pre-Twitter way. And he says, actually, you know what? You might be like hyper-focused on all of the rules of the Torah, but you've completely lost the storyline of the Torah, and therefore you're missing the heart of God, and as a result, you're breaking the Torah on the left and on the right all of the time. You're missing the Torah, you're breaking the Torah, because you have got the rules down, but you're missing the story, you're missing the plot. And so what Jesus is advocating for is a greater righteousness, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a incredible, we studied that two weeks ago. If you missed it, go back and listen to the podcast. So we need more than just the letter of the law. External obedience. We need more than external obedience if we're going to fulfill the law in the eyes of Jesus. We need the spirit of the law. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 3, or excuse me, 3, verse 6. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So this section on adultery is the second of two examples of how to actually read the commandments in light of Jesus being there. And uh, I love Jesus, and here he's being like super extra punk rock. He's always punk rock when he's like with the religious elites. He's challenging them and critiquing them all the time. But here especially, because not only were the scribes self-righteous, they were also sexist. And he's pushing back on all of it. He's saying just because you haven't committed adultery doesn't mean you're pure in heart. That's point number one. That's critique number one. But then he's also saying stop alienating women for your lack of self-control. Take responsibility for your eyes. Take responsibility for your heart. Take responsibility for your actions. Jesus is putting the responsibility squarely on men in a patriarchal society to like reject sexism and, and start welcoming sisters into the fold. So one scholar puts it like this. God sees and cares about the inner person. Because of this, the ethical command here is based not just on the explicit action of adultery, but much more pervasively on adulterous intent. So this is Jesus preaching again a whole person, greater righteousness to be pursued by God's people. Love this so much. He's saying again, this is about the heart. This is about the spirit of the law. So that's an important layer of this message. The last important layer of this message that we're going to get before we before we're done is Jesus is identifying a vicious cycle of lust in the human experience and graciously showing us the way of deliverance. So he's not just saying, "Hey, you guys are in a whole lot of trouble. Good luck. I don't know what to tell you." Fortunately, that's not Jesus's message. He says, "Oh, this is bad." Lust is not God's heart for you, but let me show you the way of deliverance. Again, the, G, the reason Jesus is getting straight to the heart of the issue is not so that we would continue to live in shame, although we have to experience a little bit of guilt when it comes to our sexual sin so that we can move through that to experience freedom and wholeness in Jesus. But we, he wants us to walk in, in, in freedom, and he's the deliverer. He's ultimately the one who wants you to flourish in true holiness, and he's the one who shows you how it's perfectly done. So not only is Jesus talk, but he's also action. He backs up everything he says with action. I love that. So if you're in the group of people who is daily battling with lust, number one, you're in good company. You're not alone in that struggle. And number two, Jesus sees you. He sees you, and he wants to show you the way of deliverance. Now, if you're here and this is not your struggle, then l thank God. Like, literally, you thank God for this not being your struggle because of the seriousness that which Jesus talks about sexual sin. It's sobering. Don't get cocky about it. Stay humble. Because the reality is that temptation is often what strikes when we're feeling overconfident. And then also remember the broader critique that Jesus is getting at. Guard yourself against self-righteousness. Guard yourself against judgmentalism. 
Because that's the broader critique here in the Sermon on the Mount. Is don't just be proud. Don't give yourself a bunch of rules and then be proud for following them and look down on people who are struggling or wrestling on the side. Instead, have compassion, have love. And of course, sexual sin has devastating effects. And so if you're reeling from that because of a spouse or because of a, someone who's close to you and, or maybe you're a victim of sexual abuse, we're, again, deeply, deeply sorry. Guard your heart against self-righteousness and judgmentalism. So what we need to do is identify the vicious cycle and how it works in our life. So the vicious cycle of lust, according to Jesus, is driven by a disordered heart and uncontrolled desires. A disordered heart and uncontrolled desires. The heart is the key word of the whole message. It's the Greek word cardia, and it's used about a couple thousand times in the Septuagint and in the Bible, and it refers to the whole inner person. It's not just the seat of emotions. It's like your whole character. It's your whole person, and that's important for how we understand this. In the Beatitudes, Jesus congratulates the pure in heart. Remember that from like a month ago? Brooke taught this. The pure in heart. Congratulations, blessed, flourishing, hopeful, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Can you think of a better reward than that? Like, I, honestly, I was like thinking about that question. I'm like, I don't know if there is a better reward. Like the pure in heart, the ones who from the heart don't just abstain from uh, adultery, but actually live in purity, they will see God. Man, that's an incredible reward. So essentially what Jesus is doing in referencing that idea of being pure in heart in the Beatitudes and now here in, in verse 28, he's challenging us to take a longer view of your commitment to purity than instant gratification. Is that making sense? Take a longer view of your commitment to purity than just instant gratification. If the battle is about what you want in this moment, you're going to lose it every time. You're going to lose it every time. But if you take the longer view about what God is doing in creation and how he's returning soon, then you actually have a shot at living and walking in purity. Remember, you have been born again to an eternal life with God. That is your hope. In fact, the scripture says that that is now your present reality if you are in Christ. So the promise of purity is well worth the commitment and the diligence that it requires from you because the promise is that you'll see God. So, the, so by the logic of the Beatitudes, then, you're not going to get to the end of this life and think to yourself, man, I wish I had more sexual partners. You're not going to say to yourself, man, I wish I would have spent more time like watching porn or objectifying other humans made in the image of God. That's not going to be your reflection on life on planet Earth when, you're all, when it's all said and done. You're going to be struck instead by the majesty and the grandeur and the glory and the magnificent power of God. And in all likelihood, we won't even be able to stand. We'll just be before God's, God's throne and, and complete bewilderment at just how awesome and incredible that he is. And we're going to have just a sense of gratitude at all of the moments that we had on earth to reflect his image and to reflect his glory in the world. And of course, part of that is your personal purity. I love that. So real life example for a minute. Um, it's 100 degrees outside. And so many people are just like not really exactly wearing clothes. And um, that's not like a jab at our culture. It's just an is. It's just the thing that is right now um, outside of these four walls. So what you can choose to do is you can choose to fixate on that person or the people you find attractive as sexual objects, as sexual beings. Or instead, you can choose to take a longer view and to consider the difference in value the difference in value between that instant gratification and seeking God in all of his glory. And of course, I recommend the latter. Like the fleeting moment or the initial sort of gratification that you might get by objectifying another human being does not pale in comparison, or excuse me, pales in comparison to the glory of God, which you are promised by God to see if you're pure in heart. It's a beautiful promise. Look with me, uh, last scripture here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It says, Paul is um, writing to this church at Corinth, which, by the way, um, was known for being a very pagan city. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense. It's just another thing that is. There was not a lot of synagogues there or people who followed Jesus. So the culture had no um, 
bearing on the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. They didn't know the Ten Commandments or anything like that. And so um, Paul is writing to this church that is largely made up of these people who grew up in that culture, and now he's teaching them to walk in purity. In fact, he's calling them to be faithful. And this is what he says. He says, um, this is Paul speaking, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure bride to him. So notice the completion of the picture here. The completion of the picture of marriage, the completion of the picture of intimacy is that Jesus is returning and he's calling us his bride. He's making covenant with us. He's making a vow to us. He's living with us in, uh, in, 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 in pure relationship. So notice a couple of things. First, I noticed like the responsibility that Paul is taking as the spiritual leader to cultivate um, our hearts to be loyal to Jesus. I think that's a huge thing. Paul is owning his place as a leader whose job it is to prepare the church for Christ's return. That's pretty intense. That's pretty incredible. And it's actually kind of an honor when you think about it that we might have the, the, that privilege too if we're a spiritual leader to help prepare people for when Jesus returns. But number two, this is the, this is the crux of it. This is the point of it. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back for a pure bride for people who are faithful to him. And that's not a threat. It's actually a hopeful promise, a beautiful promise. We might be tempted to live in this world of instant gratification, but what we ultimately want is not that. What we ultimately want, our deepest desire, I believe, is to walk in complete and total purity, be the kind of people who are ready for Christ's return. We want to hear that radical call to purity from Jesus so that we can move through those initial feelings of guilt around our sexual sin and move towards freedom and deliverance from all of that. We want to be radically transformed by him. So the way that I hope we can hear this from Paul is that there's no time to waste. We don't know when Jesus is returning, but that is our eschatological hope. We're not hoping, and hoping on anything short of Jesus returning and reuniting heaven and earth. That is what we aim for. That is what we long for as people. So your temptation in the moment is not what defines you. It's not your identity. It's not ultimately what you most deeply desire. What we most deeply desire, of course, is Jesus. So we have a couple questions for your reflection. And I know I've gone long. Thanks, you guys, for hanging with me. Um, questions are this. What kind of heart are you cultivating? And are you practicing self-control? So there, is, there are things within your power so that you can be ready for when Christ returns. Notice um, Luke's version of this story, uh, or excuse me, the, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. He, he says something really interesting. He says, no tree, no good tree bears bad fruit. So what he says, he says, the good person, verse 45, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what we're being taught here is that we have the ability to cultivate or store up good in our hearts. And that's actually the, you know, a way of looking at spiritual practice. It's a way of looking at spending every day, moment by moment, stirring your heart towards God and the goodness of God. And um, so that is, I think, one of the main things that that I have noticed in my life and my commitment to personal purity as a pastor and as a husband and as a father and as a man of God has been the more that I am just walking in step with the Spirit, hashtag last series, come Holy Spirit series. The more I'm just walking in step by the Spirit, by practicing prayer, seeking the presence of God, opening my word, living life in community, the more my heart is just pulled towards God. And quite frankly, I just don't have time for lust. I don't have time for looking at other people as sexual objects. It's just not even where my mind goes. And if it does for an instant, I reject it. I don't actually want it because my life has a bigger meaning. And I have a reward that's waiting for me. And life is too important and too crucial to just get sidelined by objectifying other humans made in the image of God. And that's what the spiritual practices do. They shape us to be the kinds of people who are ready for that. So the end of the passage talks a lot about 
Um, There's these hyperbolic statements about gouging out eyes and cutting off hands and stuff like that. Essentially what Jesus is teaching here is aggressively root out sin from your life. Aggressively root out sin from your heart. So again, what kind of heart are you cultivating? So if you're feeling the conviction of sin today, I, I, I hope that you can hear that from the framework that God actually disciplines the ones that he loves. That's Hebrews chapter 13. Sexual, sexual sin is not a victimless sin. People are affected by it. You're affected by it. 1 Corinthians 6, the sin that you commit sexually, you commit against your own body. But if you are convicted, move through that conviction of sin by confessing your sin towards freedom and towards purity. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, above all, the doctrine of sin leads us to see the absolute need of a power greater than ourselves to deliver us. It is a doctrine that makes a man run to Christ and rely on him. And I I love that. I love the spirit of that. So at the center of this message is one of grace. That ultimately we are clean. We are pure as snow, the scripture even says, because of what Jesus has done for us. And we have this profound opportunity to then decide to walk in purity. Walk in purity. So how do we aggressively root out sin from our hearts? That's the final question for your reflection. How do we actually do it? There's certain things in life that you just can't do casually. You know what I mean? Certain things you can't do casually. You can't do an Iron Man casually. You can't fight cancer casually. You can't earn a PhD casually. All of this takes focused, deliberate effort. So if I said to you, hey, I haven't really been training or anything, but, you know, God wants me to do an Ironman. I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm just going to do it. Obviously, that would be a humongous failure. I probably need Moses to come pick me up on the side of the road after like two miles. But, But so often we look at our personal purity like that. Where I'm not making any conscious choices to walk in purity. I'm just waking up and hoping that something different happens today. And the reality is, is that, of course, we're threading this needle where God is the one who makes us pure. God is the one who saved us by his grace. There's nothing that we could have done to earn his favor or his love. We cannot ever achieve holiness. Like, we're not the ones who actually achieve it. But we partner with God in our personal holiness by making conscious choices day by day to notice our sin and to confess our sin and to live into community and then, of course, to practice the spiritual discipline so that we can walk in true holiness. I'm going to slow that down just a second because this is the way of deliverance from sexual sin. Number one, notice your sin. Just notice it. Just realize that it's there. Don't give yourself credit for just not committing adultery. Also just see the the deeper point that Jesus is after. Realize that there's actually lust in your heart or maybe that's not your issue. Maybe it's another issue. Okay, fine. What is that issue? Notice it. And then the scripture says in 1 John 1, That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is the hope of the gospel. So we confess our sin, both to him, but there's also something about confessing in community. And that's really critical. This is an important part of my life, is that I live in community with a handful of others. And we talk very openly, very plainly, very honestly about the things that we're wrestling and struggling with. And I recommend that you do the exact same. And then, this is one of my favorites. If you've been at the church any length of time, you're probably sick of hearing me say this. Build your life on the word of God. Open the word and store up treasure there in your heart. Store up the truth of God in your heart. Uh, And then, last, practice self-control. So self-control begins like this. Noticing your sin, of course. But then, noticing also that your desires and your emotions don't run the show. The ways that you are tempted this moment, that doesn't run the show. Jesus' vision for life in the kingdom of God, that runs the show. That's our true authority. That's who we are submitted to. So self-control begins there. It begins right there where we acknowledge, yes, of course I'm being tempted. Yes, I do have desires that are corrupted. Yes, I do have emotions that are in play right now. But I am not enslaved to those things. I'm actually in submission to King Jesus. Are you guys with me? 
Thank you guys. I know that was a long one. And we did it. We survived it. We made it through the whole thing. You guys did great. Let's stand and let's pray. We're going to respond now. And the way that we respond is by thanking Jesus for being perfectly pure. And thanking him that we can run to him. And we're getting our hearts ready for communion, which is what we're going to do in about five minutes. It's to thank God for his sacrifice on the cross so that all of my sexual impurity and all of my anger and all of the other things that are present in my life and were definitely more present back before I knew him. He's removed that sin from me the way that the scripture describes that as, as far as the east is from the west. So God, we just say thank you right now. We thank you for your greatness. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you didn't look on our impurity and you didn't look at our sexual brokenness and throw up your hands and walk away. We thank you, Jesus, that you came, you gave us your sexual ethic, and then you showed us how it's perfectly done. And so we want to acknowledge that. We want to say thank you for that. Thank you that you've shown that it is possible to walk in pure purity. We thank you. And we also thank you, God, that you are determined to not leave us how we are today, but that you are taking us on a journey towards sanctification. And so I pray for my sisters and brothers right now. We acknowledge the ways that sin is in our heart, and we want to store up more good in there. We want to store up the treasure of your word, your truth, your majesty, your goodness. We want to seek your presence. We want to be shaped by your practices so that we can be truly pure. We ask that as we sing, God, that you would just embody these praises, that you would be high and lifted up, that you would be glorified in our praises. God, that you would hear our voices and that you would smile, that it would be like, uh, as the scripture says, a sweet aroma to you, that you go like, yeah, those are my people, those are my kids. I have their hearts and they're singing to me right now. We give you our heart, God, and we just pray that you would, um, yeah, that you would purify us and that you would strengthen us by your spirit. Hearts, 
thank you that you have promised to return. We thank you that you are purifying us as your church and you are making us ready for that grand return when you come in all authority and power. You're coming as a loving, amazing, beautiful dictator who is calling us his people and his own. So Riverbend, you, when you walked in, you should have received the bread and the cup. So I want you to open that now and get ready to take it together because what Jesus is doing by instituting the Lord's Supper is he's bringing us to remembrance. He's, he's saying, remember what I have done. Remember my broken body. Remember my spilled blood so that you can receive forgiveness. But he's also teeing up a new ritual meal that points ahead to the day when Jesus returns because he says there's going to be a great wedding feast. And so every time we eat, we drink, we, we, uh, we eat, we drink to the Lord's death until he returns. Scripture says that Jesus is holding off drinking wine until he returns. He says that actually in this section on the Lord's Supper. And he 
he says that because he's actually waiting to raise a glass of celebration. When all is completed, when all of this brokenness and this evil and this corruption that we've been talking about and all the abuse, it's all a thing of the past and all that we have to look forward to are tears of joy. So let's, let's pray and eat and drink together. God, we just say thank you so much for your, uh, your, your, your supper, your table that you've prepared for us. Thank you for the great forgiveness that you offer and thank you for not going back on your word to come and get us to come and redeem, to come and make things whole and things right. We long for your rule. God, we long for your reign. In our hearts now, we pray. In these four walls, we pray right now. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's eat and drink together. So another thing that we like to do every single week as a way to cultivate our hearts towards generosity is repeat this giving liturgy together. And, and uh, remember, God is generous with us, so we want to be generous to others as well. So um, this is not like a heavy-handed thing or like a manipulative thing. It's just like, hey, remind your heart, remind yourself that this is actually who we are. So would you please repeat after me, or repeat with me, please. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus, to spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world and not the way of Jesus. Generosity is the way of those who call Jesus Lord and who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Okay, there's a couple of different ways that you can give. You can text Riverbend to 77977. You can download the app, give online, riverbendajc.org. You can also drop uh, a check or cash in the giving box on your way out. Again, we want to be able to say that there is no needy person among us. So as you give generously, we're able to continue the work that God has for us here at Riverbend. So what we're going to do now, you guys, is sing one last song of celebration because because of this promise that Jesus is coming back, we have so much to celebrate. We have a reason to raise a shout. And I also just wanna pray for you and speak over you that, the God, that God's presence be with you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you his peace. Let's sing a song of celebration on our way out the doors. You guys be blessed.